Well, good morning, Seven Mile Road. My name is Clint Patronella, for those I've not got to meet yet. And my family and I are now 41 days from moving to Waltham to, Lord willing, plant a Seven Mile Road church. And we are excited about this next phase in our church planting journey as we start to gather our core team and get ready to, uh, to launch a new church in Waltham. And many of you have been praying with us and for us, and so for that we are uh, very uh, thankful. My job this morning is singular. It is to preach the Word of God in a way that is clear and helpful so that we come face-to-face with God through His Word. Now, His Word is not meant merely to inspire us or give us some pithy platitudes and some great quotes to kind of chew on for the day. No, God's Word is meant to rescript our life. God's purpose this morning is that you and I would be changed by what's going to happen here in the next 35 minutes. And so would you pray with me towards that end? Father, you are good to us. You have not left us without your word. You have spoken and you have given us your word that it might change us and shape us into the image of your son. I pray that it would do that this morning as we focus on Jesus, that our hearts would uh, be changed, that they would be shaped, that, they would, that we would be changed more and more to look like your son and to follow him with every aspect of our lives. We need your help to do that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so if you had to guess, how many decisions do you think you make each day? Is it in the teens? Is it in the hundreds? Is it in the thousands? According to some research done at Cornell University, that number is actually 35,000. Their research shows that you and I make about 35,000 decisions each day. And if you're like me, when I first heard that number, I thought, that's absurd. There's no way. I don't have the, the brain size to do anything like that. But when you think about our decisions, every decision that you may outline actually is made up of a bunch of probably hundreds of micro decisions that make that one decision. And so each day we're faced with what to eat, and that involves numerous decisions. What's gonna, what components are going to go uh, into your breakfast and what to wear, right? It, it involves multiple things going on. When you go out and shop, what to purchase, the items that are going into your cart. How do we spend our time? That decision alone involves hundreds. What do you do at work each day? How do you spend every single minute? Who do we vote for? That's a complicated one, right? Who to date? Who to marry? What we say and how we choose to say it. What we name our children. I don't know about you, but that one was a hard one for us. I mean, we just pined over that one. Went battling back and forth. What route do you take to work to avoid traffic? Which app do you use? Do you use Waze or Google Maps or iMaps? What do you use? Take, for instance, my Saturday morning. I decided to go to a coffee shop and do some last-minute work on my sermon for this morning. And so before I left, I had to choose. Do I eat breakfast here at home and save a couple bucks, or do I eat it on the road? What do I get? Do I grab a quick bagel, or do I take the time to make some sausage and eggs? Now, which coffee shop do I go to? Do I go to the local one down the street in Stoneham, or do I go for the true and tried Dunkin' Donuts? What do I get? Well, for me, that's easy. Iced coffee, black, no room, in case you want to bring me a coffee. Now, when I get to the coffee shop, where do I sit? Do I sit with my back to the door? Of course not. 
I'm Italian. I would never do that. Right? We always sit in the very back where there, no one can sneak up behind you, and you can always see the door, and you've got an exit plan. Right? While I'm working, music or no music, headphones, no headphones. You see, just a simple act of going to a coffee shop requires many, many decisions. In fact, we have to make so many decisions each day that there's a trend among some of the elite top executives to start categorically removing decisions off their plate. Remember Steve Jobs? He always wore the black turtleneck. Mark Zuckerberg over at Facebook, what does he wear? Great t-shirt, right? The reason they do this is so that they're removing all of these minor decisions so they can focus on the most important decisions they have to make each day. And all of these decisions that we make, they come with consequences, right? Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad. Now, fortunately for us, amongst the thousands of decisions that we have to make each day, most of those, con- most of those consequences are minimal. But what about the big ones, the ones that matter, like who we marry and how we decide to raise our children? What do we believe about God? What is my life going to be about? What would I be willing to die for? You see, these are the kinds of decisions that define us. Or another way to say it is like this. Who you are actually determines the answers to those questions. And what we choose to decide on the big questions of life determines much. Because there's a weight to them. And we recognize with those heavier decisions, there's actually a cost to them. And so how do you approach these questions? What frameworks do you have in place in your life as you approach those decisions? Well, in today's passage, Paul is faced with many decisions. Some are minor, and yet some of, are the, some of the decisions he has to make in this passage are those major, life-defining, costly decisions. And so we're going to look at Paul and see how he trusts Jesus in the costly decisions of life. And not only are we going to see Paul trust in Jesus as he's making those decisions, we're going to see that for Paul, Jesus is actually the framework by which he makes those decisions. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 14, and we're going to see three things. First, we're going to see how does Paul deal with the dilemma of decisions? Second, we're going to see how we discern. How does Paul discern and navigate in in that dilemma? And then finally, we'll see how he decides. So we'll see the dilemma, the discernment, and the decision. So first, how do we deal with the dilemma of decisions? In today's text, it marks a significant turning point in the book of Acts. And if you've forgotten or haven't been with us, we've been preaching through the book of Acts. In fact, today is the 58th sermon we've preached out of the book of Acts. Don't worry, we're going to finish by the end of the summer. But let me quickly recap the last 20 chapters. You see, the book begins in Acts 1, just before Jesus ascends into heaven, he gives the disciples a charge to fulfill the Great Commission. And he tells them to wait until the Holy Spirit shows up. And when the Spirit shows up, that they will receive power to fulfill that Great Commission, and they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what happened. The Spirit came, and this small group of 120 people became a multiplying movement that has not stopped ever since. And despite persecution from Jewish and Roman authorities, the gospel continues to relentlessly advance. You see, far from quenching this new 
movement, persecution actually helped to spread the gospel like wildfire. Missionaries started taking the gospel to the four corners of the known world. And when we come to Acts 13 through 20, we see three of Paul's missionary journeys. And we see that through the course of these chapters, Paul planted about 20 churches in Asia Minor and Southern Europe. And then these churches started planting other churches that planted other churches. And then we come at the end of Acts 19, verse 21, and we learn that Paul has decided to go to Jerusalem. Look with me. He says this. uh, Luke writes this. After these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. You see, this is a turning point in the book of Acts. The missionary journeys, the church planting work is over. That work has come to an end. And the rest of Acts is now uh, Paul's journey to Jerusalem, his arrest, his trials, and then his final journey to Rome. And so why is Paul trying to get to Jerusalem? From other scriptures in Acts and in his writings, we find out that Paul has been collecting a, uh, uh, an offering to give to the Jerusalem church. At every church he's gone to to visit them or plant, he asks for an offering to be able to send down to the brothers and sisters who are in Jerusalem because the Jewish Christians are under heavy persecution. And not only will this gift help them financially, but this gift will show them that there are brothers and sisters all over the world that love them and are for them. And so as we fast forward here, uh, uh, Paul's trying to get to Jerusalem, and after a couple stops and reroutes, Paul is in Miletus, and he's giving a final charge to the Ephesian elders there. And at the end of this address, Paul says that he is compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. This is what he says in verse uh, 22. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained. This word also means compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. You see, Paul's decided to go to Jerusalem, being compelled by the Spirit. He is a man on a mission heading towards Jerusalem. And yet, don't you see the dilemma starting to surface in this decision? For here we have the first of three warnings that Paul receives about this journey and the persecution that awaits him. He knows that the Spirit has called him to go, and yet the Spirit has told him, when you get there, it's not going to be pretty. Persecution awaits you. And this message is given directly to Paul from the Holy Spirit. But Paul is resolved, despite the apparent dilemma, and the crew presses forward. And as we flip a couple verses forward, Luke gives an eyewitness account of their 600-mile journey by boat with various stops along the way to the city of Tyre. And when they get there, they would have been on board a very large ship uh, that had cargo on it. And so it stops at port to unload all the cargo and then to reload the cargo before making its next voyage. That gives Paul and his crew about seven days or so to spend in Tyre. And so what do they do? They go and find disciples there, believers, with whom to fellowship and to stay. So pick up with me in verse 4. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Do you feel the tension starting to mount for Paul? Do you see the dilemma that is starting to surface? Now this is the second time that Paul has received a warning 
from the Holy Spirit about this trip to Jerusalem. And what makes it difficult is that it was the Holy Spirit who actually compelled Paul, who was leading Paul to go. And now there's this other thing that the Spirit is doing and warning him about coming persecution. This time, the Holy Spirit speaks through the disciples there. So Paul's been spoken to himself personally from the Holy Spirit, and now this group of other believers. They're concerned for Paul. And the Spirit has given the same warning about trials and tribulations on the road ahead. So here's the dilemma. Which is it? Is he supposed to go to Jerusalem? Or is this warning meant for him to alter and change his plans? Does the Holy Spirit want him to go to Jerusalem? Or does he want him to change? The tension here in this passage is not resolved. Because the very next verse has Paul and his company leaving Tyre and heading back on their voyage towards Jerusalem. And Luke is a good writer. He's building up this tension that he wants us to feel. And yet he doesn't resolve it. And so neither will I. Let's keep moving in the text. As we read further on, we find out that Paul and his crew now make it to Caesarea. So this is about 60 miles from Jerusalem. They're getting closer. And here they meet up with Philip the evangelist. Now 20 years have passed since we last saw Philip back in Acts chapter 8. And in Acts chapter 8, we learn that he was an evangelist sent out to Samaria. And he's been faithful to the work. He's also been fruitful in the work. And there's been many converts and churches established in Samaria. And at the, uh, after 20 years, he settles down in Caesarea. And the text tells us that he has four unmarried daughters who are able to prophesy. Now they stay here for some days, the text tells us, likely catching up on the last 20 years. I mean, these guys haven't seen each other in 20 years, and there's been a lot of, of ministry going on. And so you can just imagine the stories that are going on. Oh, and then look what the Spirit did here. And then look what happened here. You'll never believe what happened here. They're sharing all this, and then look what happens in verse 10. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now, this is another character we've seen in the book of Acts. Last time we saw him, it was in Acts chapter 11, and he prophesied about a coming famine. Now, Luke tells us that this famine was during the days of Claudius. Claudius was a Roman emperor who reigned from 41 to 54 AD. Now, Luke is careful to point out details, right? Now, this is industry standard for a credible historical account. When you're writing history, You need to detail and account what's happening all around. Myths are not written like this. This is why we just can't easily write off the scriptures as some kind of fairy tale and myth, because there's historical details that uh, that are written there, written just like history, so you can go and check them out. You can fact check them, so to speak. In fact, this this famine was during the reign of Claudius, and it's mentioned by Suetonius, Tacitus, and Josephus. And here's why that's important. All three of these uh, historical writers are non-Christians, and they're written independently of the book of Acts. So what does that tell us? That tells us that Luke is writing history, and there are other historical writers who would confirm this famine. And Luke writes that Agabus makes this prediction a couple years before Herod Agrippa dies in 44 AD. And then history tells us the famine comes in 47. So, Agabus prophesies this before it happens. What's the point? I mention this because if Agabus had prophesied about the famine and it didn't come true, 
Would anyone be listening to him today? Of course not. You get one shot, right? If you blow it, you're done. Nobody ever listens to you again. So when he comes down, his words carry weight. He is a credible prophet. So let's look at what Agabus has to say. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentile. Agabus, like a good showman, acts out this prophecy. He says, hey, Paul, give me your belt. We have to realize men's belts back then were about six to eight feet in length, and they were able to, to wrap around their body. And so he takes that, and he ties his own hands and his own feet and says, Paul, do you see what I look like? This is exactly what's going to happen to you when you enter into Jerusalem. And just to make sure that no one who's listening is mistaken, he says, by the way, these words are not my words. These words are from God, the Holy Spirit himself. And he declares that Paul's going to face imprisonment and persecution in Jerusalem. If you're tracking with me, this is now the third time Paul has received a prophecy of warning. First, the Spirit speaks to Paul himself. Second, the Spirit speaks to a group of believers. And now the Spirit is spoken through a credible prophet. Well, this time, the disciples and Paul's companions can't take it. Look what they say in verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Remember, this is Luke writing. Luke saying, even I couldn't take it anymore. I started saying, Paul, I'm with you, man. You know you're my boy, but let's not go to Jerusalem. That does not sound good. And the way that this text is written, this is not a one-time request. This text uh, conveys begging and pleading. They're emphatic. They're relentless in their appeal for him not to go to Jerusalem. So what does Paul say? He says, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. Sometimes we think Paul is a superhero, right? He's the man of steel. Nothing gets to Paul. He's not made of iron. He was moved to love by their sympathy and actually requested, stop, I can't take it anymore. Their pleas were like beating on his heart. The tears of the saints were wounding his heart. Do you feel the dilemma of this decision that Paul is feeling? On one hand, he knows the Spirit has called him to go to Jerusalem. And he knows with certainty now that he will not be welcomed warmly in Jerusalem. Maybe the first warning, Paul thought, maybe I'm just, maybe that's just a voice in my head. Maybe he gets to tire and his disciples are just, they don't, they lack courage, they lack faith, they don't know what's going to happen. But now with this third warning, he can't dismiss it anymore. And Paul is at a crossroad. He can go down the hard path of obedience or he can turn and take the easier road. Nobody would fault Paul for backing out of this trip, right? In fact, they're encouraging him. He's got massive support to do just that. I mean, can you imagine some of the rationalization that was going on in Paul's head? I mean, if he stops for one second and thinks about the last 20 years, right? He's like, I've planted 20 churches. And these churches are healthy. They're thriving. They're planting more churches. I mean, doesn't God want me to keep on planting more churches? And he thinks about, when I write letters, it's like the word of God. 
Like, doesn't God want me to keep writing more letters? I mean, shouldn't I avoid this path of suffering to keep doing more work for God? I don't know about you, but what do you do in the hard moments where you have a decision to make, but the path doesn't seem clear? Or even harder than that, you know what the right path is, but following down that path is costly. Trusting with Jesus with the costly decisions of life will not be easy. And this is exactly the dilemma that Paul is facing. But before we see what he ultimately decides, let's consider how Paul discerns the decision. So how do we discern? At this point, we need to stop and make some sense of these warning passages. I mean, if we pay close attention to the text, we have some clues as to how Paul is discerning this apparent dilemma that he's facing. So is Paul bullheaded and stubborn, or should we admire him for his resolve? Is Paul right to brush off these warnings and his friends, or is Paul someone that we should admire for his unshakable resolve? I mean, which is it? Is the Holy Spirit giving Paul a prohibition not to go to Jerusalem? Is the Holy Spirit contradicting himself? Maybe we think, man, the Spirit's got it wrong here. He's telling Paul one thing, and he's also telling him another. These are all fair questions. But I think if we look closely at these three predictions, we'll see that the Spirit never gives a clear prohibition. You never see the Spirit say, do not go to Jerusalem. I forbid it. In fact, what is clear is that the Spirit has told Paul and compelled him to go. He doesn't say not to go. Agabus comes and says, this is what's going to happen when you get there. But Agabus never says not to go. The people who are saying not to go are drawing their conclusions from the prediction. They're they're concerned for Paul's well-being. And that's a natural reaction, right? When they're suffering, the natural reaction is to avoid it. But Paul knows in his gut that the Spirit has compelled him to go. And so how do we make sense of this? We do it like this. Paul is both compelled and cautioned. There is a prediction, not a prohibition. You see, the Holy Spirit calls and compels Paul to go and lets him know what to expect when he gets there. The disciples around him are not wrong to look out for Paul's well-being. But what we can't miss is this. Paul's well-being is actually well-kept by God. He is going where the Lord is leading him, and he is ready to risk his life for the gospel, and he is determined to move ahead. Paul is weighing and discerning the facts He knows, on the one hand, God has called him to go to Jerusalem. And on the other hand, he knows that suffering is there waiting him. But the decision to go into suffering, these are not mutually exclusive ideas. He can trust the Lord because he knows that no matter what comes his way, he's in good hands. Paul's making sure not to think with his feelings. I mean, surely he doesn't want the pain of the suffering but he knows God has called him and that truth anchors him. He's letting the truth about God guide his decision-making process and not allowing the fear and anxiety to cloud the path before him. Again, that doesn't mean he doesn't feel the weight of the situation, but he has an inner strength because of his faith in Christ. What we have to see is there's no easy formulas for discerning God's will. 
There's not a best-selling book out there that can say, if you follow these steps exactly, you'll always know which way to go. In fact, if you see a book like that, rip it up, throw it away, burn it. Because that's not the scriptures. The scriptures on purpose do not give us a kind of pat answer, an easy formula. God calls us into a relationship where we depend on him, where we communicate with him, where we talk with others, where we weigh the truths in front of us. You see, the dilemma here was not in figuring out what God wanted him to do. Paul knew that. The dilemma was in doing what God was calling him to do. So at this point, we've seen the dilemma, and we've now seen how he's discerned. Let's look at how Paul ultimately decides. Verse 13, For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul could say to his friends, not only am I ready to die or be imprisoned, but I'm ready to die for the name of Jesus. Why? He had considered the question, am I willing to trust Jesus with costly decisions? Look at the next verse. And since Paul would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. I like the way that Dr. Martin Luther King said it. Look what he said. A man who won't die for something is not fit to live. You see, Paul has spent time outside of this decision weighing what he is willing to die for. I got to believe that this wasn't the first time Paul had considered, would I die for the name of Jesus? He's willing to give it all for the name and sake of Jesus, and he's made that decision. Already. So when he comes to this dilemma, essentially he's already made up his mind. Paul's decision to stay the course and follow the Lord is based on his resolve to follow Jesus no matter what. He's resolved in his heart to be willing to give it all for the sake of Jesus. The question for Paul, what am I willing to die for, has already been settled when he comes to this decision. He's all set. And when I first read this passage, the words of Jim Elliot quickly came to mind. If you remember, Jim Elliot was a missionary to the Hurani people of Ecuador. And this, uh, before uh, Jim Elliot and the missionary showed up, this was a people group that was 100% unreached. And Jim and his team um, got there and started to actually make inroads with these people. And they made a, they made a friend, and uh, they started to, he became a confidant for them. And actually, this friend turned out to betray them. And on January 8th, 1956, Jim Elliott and his missionary friends were killed by a group of Hurani people. And after his death, his wife, Elizabeth Elliott, um, edited and published his journal. So imagine like the, your prayer journal being kind of published out there for the world to see. And seven years earlier, Jim wrote on October 28th, 1949, these words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You see, Jim was ready to die. Why? Seven years earlier, he had written these words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, that's a powerful statement. And those words have sat heavy on me all week. And I've had to ask the question, am I willing to give what I cannot keep? to gain that which I cannot lose. You see, it's not foolish 
to give up this life, which you cannot keep yourself, to gain a life that can't be lost, the eternal life offered in Jesus Christ that First Peter says is kept in heaven, imperishable and unfading and undefiled for you. And in fact, Jesus stated it in even stronger terms. He said, not only is it not foolish to give up this life, it's actually necessary. Look what he says in Luke 9, 23 through 25. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And verse 25, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Jesus is saying the only way to save your life is to lose it. The only way to obtain eternal life is to let go of this one. We have to be willing to turn our back on all that the world offers in order to follow Jesus. You see, Paul is willing to be bound in Jerusalem because his life and heart are already bound with Jesus. Paul is able to face the hard course knowing that he's going to be bound because he is bound to the one who is broken free from the bounds of death. You see, Jesus at this point has already crossed every obstacle that Paul is facing. Wasn't it Jesus who had predicted his suffering to come in Jerusalem? Jesus had set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus' friends had pleaded with him to avoid his suffering. And Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. Paul is able to go where Jesus has walked because now he's walking with Jesus. He's able to suffer like Jesus because he's suffering with Jesus. He's not alone in the midst of his suffering. And because Jesus broke free from his binding, so too Paul will break free. Because Jesus was raised out of the pit, Paul too will be raised out of the pit. Because Jesus was walked out of the grave, so too Paul will walk out of the grave. He can face his fears because his fears have been faced by Jesus. His determination here is grounded in a determined Savior. Jesus gave up his life, which was infinitely valuable and imperishable, in order to take our sin and die in our place. Jesus actually gave up life itself. He gave up his righteousness in order to gain what? Our unrighteousness and sin. Jesus traded his glory and perfection to gain our shame and imperfection. We know that Paul knew this deep down in his bones. We can see it in his other writings. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Paul believed that. Look what else he believed. For 2 Corinthians 8.9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, for our sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. These words are why we can agree with Jim Elliot that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Paul has been following Jesus these last 20 years. The decision has been made. He will give up his life so that he gains life that will never end. Friends, there is a cost to following Jesus. It will cost you your life. But if you're following him, that shouldn't bother you. Why? Because when you decided to follow him, 
You did so knowing that it meant to give up your life. And in return, you don't get shorthanded. He gives you abundant life. And at the same time, friends, there's a cost to not following Jesus. It will cost you your life as well. But instead of ending with abundant life, it just ends in your death. Following Jesus leads to greater life. So are you willing to give what you cannot keep, to gain what you cannot lose? Now tomorrow, you're going to wake up and you're going to face 35,000 more decisions. What would tomorrow look like if you approached those decisions with this question in mind? Am I willing to give what I cannot keep to gain what I cannot lose. Some decisions will have relatively no uh, gospel costs associated with them at all. Make those and move on. But for the ones that have gospel costs attached to them, what would it look like if we approached those decisions with this question in mind? And so to make this a little, uh, to bring this down into some practical application, I want us to think about this question in three domains of our life with our time, with our money, and with our relationships. I mean, these tend to be three of the hardest domains for us to bring in full submission to Christ. But if we're going to go all in and trust Jesus and the costly decisions, then we need to right now, today, make some of those decisions. Just like Paul, right? He made the decision to follow Jesus no matter what before he was in the moment of decision. You need to settle up now the answer so that, uh, on what you will give up to gain Jesus. You see, in the midst of the dilemma, it's much too difficult to make that call. The pressure of the moment will cloud your judgment. Emotions can come in and make it difficult to see clearly. And so what we need to do is set aside time today, each day, to consider the cost of actually following Jesus. And when we sit down and we pause and we take that moment to say, am I willing to give what I cannot keep, to gain what I cannot lose, that time becomes this daily reminder to say, what are the things I need to give up in order to gain Christ? So what are some areas of your time that you're unwilling right now to reorder and reschedule? Often our schedules are the hardest things to give up and say, Jesus, it's yours. Whatever you require of me, it's yours. Think about your money. We don't get to take it with us, yet we hold on to it like we do, don't we? What areas of our budget are we unwilling to rework and reallocate? Is there a section of your budget and your bank account that you've said, it's off limits, Jesus, you don't get that? Give what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. Think about your relationships, family, friends, your neighbors and colleagues, Are you serving them at cost to yourself? Are you moving towards them in love with the love of Christ? My hope this morning is that this question would be unescapable as you go out from here and into your week. But all of this, thinking about these questions, is a ridiculous non-starter if you've not made the first and most important decision to follow Jesus. That decision must be settled first. You will either die for yourself. You will either die to yourself and gain the life that Jesus has for you, or you will die because of yourself and get nothing back. Seven Mile Road, let's give what we cannot keep 
so that we can gain what we cannot lose. Let's pray. Father, what an unbelievable promise. Sometimes our hearts think that it may just be too good to be true. But is there anything that's too good to be true? Father, you know our frame. You know that we're weak. You know that everything tells us that this life is all we have, and so we cling to it so closely. Would you stir in us the faith that it requires to let go, to give it up, to gain the greater reward? Lord, would we not be foolish? Would we give up that which is less valuable and perishable to gain that which is exceedingly valuable and imperishable? We need your help to do that. Work in this room. Spirit, have your way here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.